Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Jeffrey Miller, professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of New Mexico. I am very, very happy to have Jeffrey on the show. We've been trying to schedule this for a while. Welcome, Jeffrey. Great to be here, Steve. Delighted. Great. So, Jeffrey, I always like to get a little bit about the childhood and growing up experiences of my guests. And I, I know you, you grew up in Ohio and then you went off to Columbia for your undergraduate degree. Could you just flesh that out a little bit? Like maybe just say to us what the world looked like to you back in, I guess that would have been the early 80s. Yeah, I was born in 65. I had a very happy bourgeois upbringing in suburban Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a relatively conservative place. I went to wonderful, actually wonderful public schools that had really strong uh, standardized testing and tracking, which was a big benefit to me. I had a great time in school, wonderful local friends. My dad was a lawyer. Mom was a politically engaged homemaker. And I had a sort of unusual family structure, which is my mom was one of 12 kids. And a lot of my uncles and aunts were very similar in age to me, lived just a few blocks away. So we had sort of the, the benefits of both a, a bourgeois nuclear family, but also a very large extended family nearby. Wow, that's great. Now, when you were growing up, did you, did you have a sense that you were gifted or intellectually precocious? I knew I was very good in school. But I think my parents instilled some really strong civic virtues that basically said, you know, the smarter and more talented you are, the more of a, a duty you have to sort of give back and not to be arrogant, not to be narcissistic. And you need to be using your talents kind of pro-socially. And, and that for me was kind of a good lesson because I'm, I'm naturally, you know, a little bit narcissistic and having that humility was helpful. Also, honestly, being in a heavily tracked public high school where, you know, there's honors programs, there's AP classes, there's a lot of academic competitiveness. I was smart, but I was not the smartest kid in my class. My best friend was actually the valedictorian and probably at least five or 10 IQ points smarter than me. Likewise, at Columbia University, I think it's really important for smart kids to go to highly competitive schools so that they get the humility to know I'm not the smartest kid in the room and to be able to learn from from others and to kind of get calibrated so that you don't end up with the kind of intellectual arrogance that can be quite toxic. I think I, I heard you say in an interview that you were very happy to have gone to Columbia when you did because they were still doing the great books curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. It was really inspiring. You know, you first you spend the first couple of years at Columbia University and I think this is still largely true. Reading the great books of Western civilization and philosophy, religion, science, social theory, etc. There's a heavy emphasis on the Greeks, the Romans, the Middle Ages, the Enlightenment, etc. And you talk about these in small seminars that are run by really world-class academics who are actually teaching and not just getting research grants. They're actually running seminars. And these are like famous that was enormously inspiring. And then Columbia University had such an amazing smorgasbord of other great classes. I took a lot of courses in East Asian Studies Department, Chinese history, Japanese art, etc., just because I was interested in it. And, you, you know, I ended up majoring in psychology, but I had very broad interests. I read a lot of 
actually deconstructionism, Derrida and Foucault and Leotard and all, all those guys who are very popular in the Columbia philosophy department at that point. So I feel like I got both a really good grounding in empirical psychology, but also quite a bit of exposure to the kinds of thinking that would go on in, in the modern era, in the 21st century, to become kind of the foundations of, of wokeness. So I feel like I kind of got both sides of that in college. We, we can get back to wokeness in just a little bit. Can you put your finger on what attracted you to psychology at that stage of your life? Weirdly, I kind of got into psychology via my interest in contemporary art, which is a very roundabout passage. I was always interested in art. I ran an art magazine in high school. I took a lot of courses on history of art. I got very interested in 1960s and 70s conceptual art, which is all about kind of, it's not really about visual aesthetics. It's about creating certain kinds of concepts or ideas or connections between ideas in the heads of the viewer. All kind of conceptual art was purely verbal. You just put up a sentence on the wall of an art gallery and hope that the, the viewers will think about it. And that actually led me into cognitive psychology because I thought, wow, conceptual art, how does that work? How do you have a, like a, an aesthetic response to just words on a gallery wall? So I got very interested in memory, learning, categorization, conceptual thinking, metaphor, I actually did my undergraduate psych honors thesis on the cognitive processes underlying metaphor and analogy, which I thought were fascinating. And then eventually, you know, later in grad school, that led into evolutionary psychology. Was the language instinct already a book at that time, or was that later? That was later. The language instinct was by Steve Pinker, I think it was the mid or late 90s. I graduated college in 87, went to grad school at Stanford, 87 to, to 92, basically. So that was actually before a lot of the popular EBSYC books of the, of the 90s. I see. So you were, you were kind of ahead of your time in, in thinking these thoughts, I think. Well, I just, pure stochastic accident, I happened to be a graduate student in cognitive psychology at Stanford at a time when my advisor, Roger Shepard, who's famous for mental rotation experiments, Shepard happened to hire two postdocs, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby from Harvard, who came to Stanford and spent a couple of years there. And they were developing evolutionary psychology there in the late 80s. And I just happened to hang out with them and get very fascinated by it. And me and my friend Peter Todd, who's now a professor at Indiana University, got kind of maybe a little too obsessed with applying evolutionary biology to psychology and heavily inspired by uh, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, but also by Steve Pinker, who was just getting into it at that point. David Buss from Texas visited Stanford a bit. And Gerd Gigerenzer was also a big influence on how we thought about judgment and decision-making from an evolutionary perspective. And he was visiting Stanford also for a year. Wow. So you were very fortunate, actually. <laughs> That's quite a cast of kids. Yeah. It, it was, it was well, very fortunate intellectually. It probably set my, just in terms of pure career and like getting jobs, it probably was extremely handicapping, but that's fine. You know, I'd rather have a really engaging intellectual career without necessarily being an Ivy League professor than, than vice versa. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I admire about you is that I can just, I can tell because I've followed your thinking for 
probably 20 years now, you're, you're not afraid of, of, you know, pursuing your own path based on quality and what, what's really interesting as opposed to just following academic fashion. Yeah. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that now with, you know, with the internet and Zoom and so forth, you can really have colleagues and friends who are extremely geographically remote. You don't really have to be in the same place as other intellectuals, the way that you would have had to do throughout, you know, any time before the internet. So it would have been quite handicapping, you know, to be a psychology professor anywhere other than New York, Boston, or maybe the Bay Area until quite recently. But now it doesn't really matter where you are physically as much. Yeah, I have the same feeling. I mean, I, I find myself able to run my research lab and, and even a startup almost remotely. So with people scattered all over the world. So it's definitely a new era. I wanted to ask you, when you were at Stanford, so can you reconstruct what the world looked like when people first started thinking about Evo Psych? Because, you know, in some sense, you know, if you go all the way back to, say, Darwin talking about mate selection and stuff like this, the idea that evolution had to, you know, have an impact and vice versa on behavior it's kind of an old idea, but I'm, I'm guessing it was it was kind of shocking when Tubi and Cosmedia started really getting into it. It it was kind of shocking, but I, I dug quite deeply into kind of the, the history and prehistory of evolutionary psychology when I was in grad school. I read a lot of Darwin. I read a lot of the psychology in the late 1800s that had been inspired by Darwin. Long story short, you know, basically what happened was psychology ever since Herbert Spencer, circa 1850, all the way through about 1920 was fairly Darwinian. And people like William McDougall and William James at Harvard were quite inspired by Darwin. They thought a lot about instincts and the origins and functions of human mental faculties, as they called them, and how cognition and motivation and, and volition and our goals are influenced by evolution. Then you get the behaviorist revolution in the 1920s that basically says, stop thinking about evolution, think instead about learning, think about classical and operant conditioning and how that shapes organisms. Don't think about internal processes in the mind. Don't think about emotion or motivation. Just think about learning. And that dominated psychology from about 1920 till about mm, 1970. Then you get the cognitive revolution, right? Basically what happens is a bunch of grad students in the 60s are trained in behaviorism, but then A, they learn about computers, and B, they do psychedelics, and they get very interested in how the mind actually works internally. And that's the origins of cognitive psychology. Also in the 70s, you get the sociobiology wars at Harvard. You get E.O. Wilson. 1975, publishing sociobiology and saying, hey, let's, let's look at how evolution shapes animal behavior. And then you get the blowback, right? You get the leftists at Harvard, like Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewontin and Leon Kamen saying, no, no, that's terrible. That's fascism. You're, you're not allowed to study evolution in relation to human behavior. Terrible, terrible. So they managed to squash sociobiology temporarily. But then you get you know, Richard Dawkins publishing The Selfish Gene, 1976. And you get Cosmides and Tooby at Harvard who witnessed the tail end of the sociobiology wars saying, okay, sociobiology as a brand is dead. It didn't pay enough attention to internal processes in the mind. 
how about if we meld evolutionary biology and cognitive psychology and study the mind as a sort of information processing system shaped by evolution. And from the mid 80s through the, the early 90s, they, Cosmides and Tubi worked on that. I think they were very successful. They basically launched evolutionary psychology as kind of sociobiology 2.0, but it proved enormously attractive to graduate students like me who wanted a paradigm, an integrative, consilient paradigm that linked the biological sciences to the behavioral sciences. And you, you, you sort of already hinted that because this was kind of a new turn in the field, specializing in it didn't help your career prospects, i.e. it was probably harder for you to get a faculty position than if you had done something that was more in vogue at the time. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was basically in postdoc limbo for about nine years, including a lot of time in, in Britain and a year in Germany. Incredibly hard at that point to get any kind of academic job if you were buying as a Darwinian, because, you know, people still took the, the old critiques of sociobiology seriously. And they were like, oh, well, Stephen Jay Gould has taught us that anybody who cites Darwin is on the far right and is dangerous and probably a, a crypto fascist and thinks way too much about sex differences and intelligence differences and God forbid, even pays attention to behavior genetics. So there are plenty of jobs I applied for where, you know, I know I didn't get them because there was one or more people on the, the search committee who had read Gould or read other critiques of evolutionary thinking and thought, no, we don't want to hire this Miller guy. He's, he's too dangerous. But, you know, that's the price of admission if you want to get involved in a new intellectual movement that's a bit controversial. You cannot plan on having a sort of easy mainstream career that, that pleases everybody. Yeah, I, w I was kind of in the opposite situation because I had originally gone to graduate school to study string theory. But once I learned enough string theory to realize that it was very unlikely to be experimentally testable in my lifetime, I sort of switched away from string theory, but in an era when almost all the top jobs were going to string theories. So I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for, <laughs> for what you went through. Now, in, the, in terms of how the field of psychology regards evolutionary psychology, since the 90s, did the situation get better and now it's worse because of wokeism? Or how would you characterize that? I would, I would say, you know, sadly, mainstream anti-evolutionary psychology has largely succeeded in, in squashing and suppressing evolutionary psychology as a field gets quite a bit of public attention. And there have been some amazing popular science writers who have popularized many of psych ideas. However, if you look at the actual numbers of psychology faculty, there's probably less than 500 evolutionary psychologists worldwide actively doing research versus there's probably 20,000 social psychologists and something like 40 to 50,000 neuroscientists in psych departments. So EBPSYCH is a tiny, tiny, tiny field with kind of outsized impact, especially in terms of public thinking. But as with behavior genetics, which is another fairly small psych field, its influence has been successfully quite limited by, by the left, basically, in, in the behavioral sciences. And would you say that situation is getting better or worse? I would say 
it's a, it's been a kind of an equilibrium for a few years, although it's gotten worse in the last five years or so in terms of the incredible rise of wokeness and its institutional power in academia. Yeah, the way I might characterize it is that since George Floyd, you know, even the basic ideas in behavior genetics or Evo Psych are basically just off limits. Like you, you could almost be canceled just by stating the standard things that you give in an introductory course in those fields. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's a bunch of ornery middle-aged and older folks like me who have tenure and don't care and have already been canceled and say what we think on social media. However, there are not a whole lot of super talented grad students coming into the field because they can they can read the writing on the wall. They know if they study F psych, it'll be extremely hard to get a tenure track job or to succeed in American academia. And that's sad, but that's kind of where we're at. You know, hopefully the pendulum swings back in a few years and people maybe the left having a stranglehold on what ideas you're allowed to research is kind of a bad idea. Yeah, I think it's very bad, but you know, these things can last for long periods of time. So Indeed. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to think. You know, in the case of behavior genetics, you know, that because of the genomics explosion of data and genomics, it should be a kind of golden era for behavior genetics. So if you if you look at the polygenic scores and things like this that people work on in behavior genetics, the corresponding predictors that are used for diseases and health risks and things like that, those are well supported and, you know, get thousands and thousands of citations and things like this in the sort of biomedical literature, but are still kind of very controversial in behavior genetics. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing is, you know, if you'd asked me back in the late 80s in grad school, will people still be doing kind of social and developmental studies that are not genetically informed, where they don't bother gathering DNA and they don't bother a sampling from you know families with twins or adopted studies? I think, no way. It couldn't possibly be the case that in 30 years, people are still doing genetically uninformed studies and saying, oh, look, this thing happens to this kid at time A, and then there's this adult outcome at time B, therefore A causes B, right? And any behavior geneticist will know, no, there might have been underlying genetic predispositions that both, you know, caused A and B. It's not necessarily environmental. But, but it's still the case in most behavioral sciences that people think, oh, if we do a longitudinal study across time, that we can infer causality and we can ignore genes, which I think is scientifically unconscionable. And yet, it's really quite difficult still to get grant money to do serious genetically informative studies. And there's also a big taboo against getting involved in the genomic studies or studying polygenic scores for psychological traits like intelligence, personality, or mental health. Because, it, you know, people just get very uneasy thinking about genes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I can open up any journal, <laughs> even Nature, and easily find, you know, in a given month, a very prominent study where one could read it and then say, yes, but they didn't consider genomic genetics and genetics could be a huge confound to their conclusions. Like the causation could be backwards or et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's, you know, I guess the a negative aspect of the current situation on the positive side in terms of, you know, small groups of people doing good science, 
it does look like in many or most of the old longitudinal studies, you know, where they followed some group of kids, you know, for 50 years or something, they're gradually genotyping everybody in the cohort. And so now the, if you want to validate some genomic predictor that you've built, you can find longitudinal cohorts where, you know, you can check to see whether the predictor actually predicted properly what their, you know, socioeconomic status or longevity or, you know, whatever outcome you choose, you know, happened over the 50 year period. And so at the scientific level, things are actually really amazing. But, you know, I think within academia, 99% of academics are not aware of this progress. Yeah. And of course, Americans have this view that only the science that happens in the U.S. really counts, that everything else is kind of a backwater. But a lot of the, the large-scale global genomics consortia are extremely multinational, and they involve American, European, Australian, you know, other kinds of, of, of scientists. And I've written before about the rise of behavioral sciences in East Asia and South Asia. And, you know, it's kind of obvious that as long as scientific research continues in places like China, and as long as they keep investing in behavioral sciences and they have some degree of freedom to explore what they want, particularly without the constraints of American wokeness, it might not matter that much in the long run what the limitations on American scientists are. It might matter quite a bit more what kind of scientific culture is developed in China, India, Southeast Asia, etc. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, as you know, I've, I've worked with collaborators in China. And currently I'm working with something called the Taiwan Precision Medicine Initiative, which is a, a very big effort to, I think they've collected now a million people in Taiwan through the healthcare system and yeah. genotyped about half of them. So, you know, the gap between this data, the size of data sets available in the West and at least in East Asia is closing very fast. You know, I want to give you credit, publicly give you credit, Jeffrey, because you were way ahead of everybody else in understanding this. I think you and I met in 2010 in person at the Behavior Genetics Association meeting. It's, a, I guess, an annual meeting, that, and it was in Edinburgh. I think that's yeah. right. And you, you really, I think you had already spent a year as a visitor at the University of Queensland, which is the home of one of the top genomics groups yeah. in the world. So you, you really knew what was coming. That was, that was I guess, now... 12 years ago, but you already knew what was coming. And I don't think probably most people are aware that you were that far ahead of the curve. I'd gotten very interested in behavior genetics in relation to intelligence, even in, in the late 90s, because I happened to be working at University College London. I actually organized a meeting in 1999 on the, the nature of intelligence that brought together some psychometricians and behavior geneticists and evolutionary psych people. And I really took seriously the, the idea that evolutionary psychology should build tighter bridges with behavior genetics and with intelligence research and wrote a bit about that you know, around 2000. Then I had this opportunity in a sabbatical in 2008 to go work with Nick Martin's genetic epidemiology group in Australia, associated with the University of Queensland, and learned a lot and tried, tried to kind of get up to speed with the, the quantitative genetics, the evolutionary genetics, the, the emerging, you know, polygenic score revolution that was just starting at that point. And I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. We will soon have a lot of DNA samples from 
large numbers of people for various reasons, you know, ancestry testing, medical genetics, etc. We will have these polygenic scores to predict complex traits, including psychological traits. And I thought psychology is going to be kind of blindsided by this. And that's sad. And, you know, by the time we met at that favorite genetics meeting circa 2010, I was pretty stoked about all this. And uh, I haven't, you know, actively pursued kind of research in this area, partly because like there's younger and smarter people than me already doing this. <laughs> and they're really good and they can actually program in R and they can do very complex multivariate analyses. And they know, you know, the evolutionary molecular genetics way better than I do. I can just kind of be an, an appreciative observer and promoter and try to take seriously what they find and, and what its implications are for psychology. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really a well-developed, I mean, if I, if I take the, the field as a whole, so the field that uses large genomic data sets and tries to predict phenotypes using what I would call machine learning, what some people might call statistical methods, that's now a huge field. And yeah, there are a lot of really capable young people pursuing it. It it's making tremendous progress, mostly on the biomedical. Unfortunately, the the size of the data sets in which you actually have the right label, the cognitive scores or personality scores for the individuals in the data set, that has really not increased that much in the last, I would say, yeah, we've had not not so much advancement in the last five years. I guess I, I guess I should be more careful because the educational attainment people though have have push things ahead quite a bit, but they're, they're kind of hitting a kind of plateau now because that's a very complicated phenotype uh, educational team. And it sort of, it sort of mixes up lots of separate things, but yeah, I mean the, the behavioral and cognitive side of it is the lagging side of it, unfortunately. And I think primarily for ideological reasons, but on the biomedical side, it's, it's advanced tremendously. Yeah. And I think there's also a measurement issue with a lot of these psychological traits. So it's, it's very funny. We, we have extremely powerful you know, ways to collect DNA and analyze single nucleotide polymorphisms and get polygenic scores. And, and that's all great. But on the, on the psychological side, right, we're still often using intelligence tests that were developed, you know, 50 to 70 years ago and haven't been really that well updated. We're using self-report personality trait scales also developed decades ago that are kind of okay, but not super reliable or valid. We're using mental health, also mostly self-report scales, honestly, developed decades ago. And so this is very silly. Like if we spent several million dollars, I'm convinced, we could have interactive, adaptive, online intelligence tests that are extremely reliable, hard to fake, valid, and that give us much more accurate, robust measures of human intelligence, even than the, the Stanford Binet or Waste IQ test. But we just haven't done that because it's taboo. Um, and likewise, of measuring personality traits in a way that's like valid and reliable. Google and Facebook probably have ways of measuring human conscientiousness and planning and reliability <laughs> that would far outstrip you know, the big five personality trait scales, because they can actually tell like how conscientiously people drive and plan and manage their calendars and 
They probably have access to our, our literal credit scores and how we pay our bills and all of that. But it's all siloed within these social media companies, aka data refineries, right, that sell our psychological data to advertisers. And they probably have better metrics of a lot of these psychological traits than anybody in a psych department does. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. Now, the question is, you know, are if you were if you you know were the boss of Google and you could reach into the existing organization, I wonder whether they don't have you know some team of psychometricians or at least people who understand psychometrics who, you know, are actually, you know, maybe pursuing this as a 20% time research project or something. It, it, if not, then it's 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 a, just a colossal waste of a, a data resource. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've done a fair amount of consulting work with market researchers and advertisers and big, big companies over the years. And oh my gosh, they have s such colossal amounts of data. But on the other hand, they're incredibly naive about psychology. And a lot of them still believe in things like the Myers-Briggs personality types, you know, which were invented in the 1940s based on, on Jungian psychoanalysis and really yep. don't have much validity. So even if Google had a team of pretty good psychometricians, I suspect it would be quite hard for that team to get anybody else in Google to pay attention to them, because probably most of the other Google employees are skeptical about psychology, not trained in psych. Unfortunately, they've probably read Stephen Jay Gould's The Mismeasure of Man, which is just one of the worst pop science books ever written in terms of lack of intellectual integrity. So sadly, the corporations that have the data that could be really, really useful are probably staffed by people who aren't academically or ideologically equipped to, to do anything useful with that data. Yeah, you know, the one, I occasionally hear stories about people who, for example, they're data scientists and they're at a company maybe that is, is giving out loans or something. And you know, as part of that, they get access to some data. For example, maybe they can get access to your your phone, some some aspects of your phone. And one of the things that I guess it was claimed had a very strong correlation with you know your ability to or your your likelihood of repaying a loan had to do with the average charge level on your phone. So if you're very <laughs> anal and you keep your phone charged near a hundred percent, you're actually much more likely to be a good a good borrower. And yeah, uh, that that totally makes sense. Yeah. So, so at that point, I thought, oh, maybe there is some very interesting data science going on looking for signals like this because the signals are worth something. At the, at the level of doing genomics, you're 100% right that they're just, there's no innovation in you know, trying to do adaptive testing at scale. I mean, you could push out an app to you know, everyone who's done 23andMe and try to measure all kinds of aspects of their personality and, and cognitive ability, but there's, there's really nothing going on and it's it's kind of verboten you can get in big trouble for you know pe people ask you immediately why why are you interested in those things <laughs> you know it's kind of a, kind of a bad look for you to be interested in those things so i i'm not optimistic about that just to give a very specific example in the uk biobank there's a fluid intelligence score and uh, i think it's based on just 12 questions and it has been administered to a fair chunk of their half million people. So there's maybe, I don't know, last time I checked, there's maybe 200,000 people who have done this fluid int test. And I believe it was, you know, validated and built in consultation with a guy, maybe you know this guy, Ian Deary. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, I think it's pretty valid, but of course, you're limited by what you can do in 12 minutes or in 12 questions, right? So 
you know, it's, it's, it's very far from the limit of what one could achieve with modern technology. Yeah. And it's a real missed opportunity because look, if you got, you know, half a million people who've got the DNA in the UK biobank, hypothetically, if let's say, you know, a fifth of them, a sample of 100,000 were willing to do more like a one hour adaptive intelligence test, and you could pay them like 100 quid for doing that in an hour. For the cost of only 10 million pounds, you'd suddenly be able to do like incredibly powerful genomics on intelligence. Now, ideally, you'd want a bigger data set because I know you, you can't really get a good polygenic score with only 100,000 people. But, you know, you could scale that up. And the idea that, you know, we can have crypto exchanges that lose $10 billion sort of overnight. For, for that price, you could do incredibly powerful genomics on major psychological traits that could sort of revolutionize our understanding of education and employment and society. Yeah, you know, you, you and I are like very like-minded on this. And, you know, I, I, I can disclose that over the past few years, I've been talking to a lot of billionaires, including crypto billionaires, trying to get them to fund a project to collect the data set that you just described. The target size, though, is about a million people, actually, what you would need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, based, based on some fancy math, that's roughly the estimate for what you need to build a cognitive predictor, which is as good as the height predictor that we built. So, but, you know, the amount of interest is quite limited. Even on people who get the benefit, there's, there's just a lot of reputational risk for being associated with that kind of project. And so I, I, I don't know when it's going to happen. Very, as, as you said, and as actually, as you said, very presciently, like 12 plus years ago, it's very likely that the first time it'll be done will be in China or some East Asian country where they just don't have any hangups about this. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I taught at a Chinese university remotely online for about a, a year and a half, and I was so impressed with the intelligence and dedication and hard work of the undergraduate students. But, oh my gosh, the, the, the pain and anxiety that they'd suffered to prepare for the Gaokao exam, the university entrance exam in China, was enormous. It's just years and years of their adolescent lives spent studying really, really intensively to pass what amounts to basically an IQ test, right? And if you could do a genomic score that was pretty good at, at IQ and you could just give a DNA sample in, in five minutes instead of studying for the Gaokao for six years, and if it predicted your university aptitude about as well, that would be a huge win. And my sense is that the Chinese government is finally kind of understanding the social and emotional costs of really intensive high stakes standardized testing. And maybe if they could have a genomic test that you know could fill the same role in terms of kind of helping their cognitive meritocracy and figuring out you know who, who would be really good at University of Beijing versus who should go to a more you know mid-ranked provincial university, that would save them an awful lot of, of time and effort and money and, and mental health costs. The problem there is that, you know, okay, on the plus side of the ledger for them, they haven't read Stephen Jay Gould. <laughs> yeah. But on the minus side, they also haven't read much about psychometrics in general. And, you know, they're not opposed to it. But when you talk to, when I, I talk to a lot of East Asian scientists and engineers and technologists and 
they're not opposed at all to the concepts. And when you show when you show them the data or the the research results, they they can they get it right away. But it's not really part of their education, so they they don't really have a good feel for, you know, how innate certain things are or. You know, th- there is a very strong feeling in Chinese culture, East Asian culture, Confucian culture, that if you work really hard, you can improve yourself. Or even that, even if you have very realistic feelings about, okay, how there's a limit to how much of that you can do. Nevertheless, you almost have a moral obligation to work really hard and try to improve yourself, especially as a student. So there's a whole different confluence of factors there that it's not going to be an easy slam dunk. I've been trying there as well. It's been a, not going to be an easy slam dunk there. But at least they don't have some kind of quasi-religious opposition to the idea that you can measure intelligence and it might be partially heritable. Yeah, I think the, the crucial thing is both in the U.S. and you know the U.K. and Europe and China, you have very strong vested interests like the educational establishment that wants to convince everybody that going to school and doing homework is the royal road to intelligence and knowledge and learning. And that if you emphasize too much the kind of innateness of some of these traits, that it would, it would challenge their funding and their power and their influence in society. And I think this is also you know, a lot of the opposition in America by the teachers unions against standardized testing is they rightly perceive it as a threat to their influence, but also a threat to how much people are willing to pay for educational credentials, right? Because look, if you had companies like Google just using intelligence tests to select employees instead of how prestigious is your undergraduate degree, then the pressure to get a prestigious undergraduate degree would drop and that would hurt enrollment and that would hurt people's ability, you know, people's interest in taking out colossal student loans. So higher education in general is extremely strongly opposed to IQ testing, not just for ideological reasons, but their their economic interests are very threatened by this. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I don't know if you're, have you ever heard of something called the CLA? college learning assessment? No, I haven't. So I learned about this when I was an administrator. So the college learning assessment was an effort by, it was a collaboration between universities and companies to build an instrument that you could administer to graduating seniors, sort of like the GRE, but but meant for companies to be able to evaluate whether students had acquired the right skills for quote, knowledge workers at leading corporations. So they set about building this test and and they they did it with input from industry. So it wasn't a bunch of psychometricians or only headed college professors. It was people from industry saying, well, we really want our, you know, our staff to be able to like read an email, read a long article or something and write an email memo or look at these graphs and summarize them in a meeting, you know. So the tasks are very practical and, you know, unobjectionable. I think any, you know, ex- C-level executive at a big public company would say, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we want. We want to know whether, whether the student graduating from Tulane can really do that, right? So mm-hmm. everybody was very happy about this CLA project. And of course, you're, you know, with your background in psychometric, you can just guess that, okay, this is just a, a very kind of clumsy way to measure someone's, you know, G or something. But mm-hmm. they didn't know this at all, the people who built the CLA. And they turned it over to the Rand Corporation for a big study. And that big study included 20 universities. 
ranging from, I think, Michigan and MIT to some directional state colleges and also some historically black colleges. So it was really a super extensive study of the CLA. Mm-hmm. And the, the, what they found was there are two alarming aspects of the CLA. One is the SAT score that you had entering colleges. A college predicts your CLA result as a senior pretty well. And secondly, there isn't much change in your CLA score. If I give it to the freshman, it, it doesn't change very much. They're not, they don't seem to be learning a lot of skills in four years of college. So this is just incredibly damaging. These results are just incredibly damaging to the whole, all the, all the kind of front, you know, happy lies that we tell ourselves about how higher ed works. And so basically the CLA is just, I think, more or less buried after, after that. It was not really adopted by a lot of schools. And it, it's a good story because, I, I mean, I became aware of it and I, I, I actually had a discussion with the other senior leadership at Michigan State. So people at the VP level, deans, provost, president, where I, I, I just explained to them what I just explained to you. And of course, they all were like, they were like the, the robots in Westworld where when you show them their own wiring diagram, they pretend they can't see anything. They say like, uh-huh. there's nothing on that page you're holding up, Steve. I can't. I can't understand what you're talking about. So I basically encountered that reaction from people who are running, you know, one of the biggest universities in the United States. So uh, yeah, the, the higher ed, higher ed is well aware of, of where its survival and best interests lie. Yeah. And even, even within any given department, you know, like my psychology department tries to measure, okay, how much psychology do incoming freshmen know when they start taking our intro psych classes? versus how much do they actually know when they graduate from the intro psych class versus how much do they remember two years later. <laughs> they do actually learn a bit, you know, from intro psych, but man, they forget almost all of it within a couple of years. And so the retention of this material is extremely weak. And, you know, economist Brian Kaplan covers a lot of this research in his book, The Case Against Education, to say actually the value added by a lot of high school and college classes, we greatly overestimate how much is actually retained by students over the long term. And so if you're saying, oh, higher education is crucial to developing educated citizens who really understand the world, well, look, if they hardly remember anything by their late 20s that they learned as undergraduates, what are you actually doing in terms of contributing to their functioning as citizens or workers. It's, it's pretty dubious. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, having slaved, I mean, actually, I shouldn't say slave because I actually enjoy teaching these courses, but I, I, at Oregon, I taught these sort of physics for poets courses, which, you know, we're not allowed to use any math beyond simple algebra, but I did many, many really beautiful, you can do really beautiful physics demonstrations where you demonstrate basic principles like conservation of energy or something and, or, or what temperature is really you know, what, what temperature really represents and things like this. So I, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm equipping these kids with these really core ideas, which, you know, they, if they, if they can just retain them, they'll be valuable to them the rest of their lives. But then I kept running into graduates that had had my class. Like I would be at some, like at the cell phone store or something and some, but would come up and say, Oh, professor Shu, I had your class, you know, conceptual physics three years ago. And then I would just, for fun, I would just ask them like what they remembered from the class. And it's like almost nothing. They would just say like, I, you know, they can't remember anything, but they said, wow, you were a really good lecturer though. <laughs> so yeah, it's, 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 it's not clear what we're actually accomplishing. 
Yeah, and you know, my my hope is I, I teach courses like human sexuality and human emotions and evolutionary psychology. I try to emphasize applications to people's personal lives rather than their employment or their kind of overall worldview. I'm like, look, here here's some typical failure modes of relationships, or here's how to talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend about this tricky issue, or here's, you know, some like actionable information about like sexual anatomy or or contraception or you know how to choose a sperm or egg donor or whatever my hope is that some of that personally relevant stuff might stick better than if i was teaching let's say a neuroscience class but i don't have any particular evidence that it actually influences i think you're totally right I, i think those students probably rate your course on relationships or or whatever as you know among the best that they took and that were the most useful because people are genuinely interested in those subjects right so another one that my my son took in high school was a course in high school called personal finance which sounds Mm -hmm. very de classe and non-intellectual and stuff but if they basically just teach a kid what like checking accounts are and how credit cards work and interest and the stock market and stuff it's extremely useful to people for the rest of their lives. But of course, it's not viewed as a, quote, core academic class at the high school. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a huge mismatch, right, between stuff that adults think, oh man, I wish I'd learned this in high school, in college. Personal finance, investing, pensions, how to do a job interview well, how to run a household, how to take care of babies, how to drive safely, how to, you know, make and repair your own furniture, how to shop effectively, how to avoid conspicuous consumption and runaway credit card debt. Like all of that stuff would be enormously helpful. I think students would retain it better, but we're not teaching that stuff. And I honestly don't know why. I guess, you know, educators just get locked into these cycles of thinking, well, it's it's just so much more important to teach Americans a second language, which they will definitely forget by the time they're 25, <laughs> right. than to teach them like, here's how compound interest works, and here's how inflation works, and here's why, you know, crypto is more volatile, but potentially has a higher ROI than traditional index tracking stock funds. Like, that stuff would be super helpful. But, oh my gosh, it might actually require high school teachers to really know things and be able to do things rather than just kind of I think know, from, from, from observing my yeah. son, I think the way it works for his generation is that they learn all this stuff from YouTube. And yeah. so like if I, if I st- or say when he was taking the personal finance course, if he's really interested in a particular subtopic, his way of getting more information just be to type a search into Google and find a video and watch it on that topic, it, it's actually, it actually works pretty well. I think there's just enormous surplus value being created by, you know, people putting up that kind of content on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's a colossal amount of value. Like if I ever have to do a car repair or just get, get a part replaced in my car, you just go to YouTube, figure it out. So you can do kind of real-time research as needed. And I don't think the educational system has taken into account that that kind of lifelong learning is now the norm particularly for millennials and Gen Z, and that they don't really need to sort of memorize a lot of that content. The, the other thing I'm struck by, I was just emailing my colleagues yesterday about the new OpenAI chatbot and how incredibly good it is at answering questions. 
it's like way more powerful than Google. And I was saying, look, the era of short answers in exams on, you know, online exams that you do at home for your site courses, it's, it's done. It's over. You cannot give short answer exams anymore because people can just use this AI, open AI chatbot to write a far better answer on any topic in psychology than the student themselves would be able to. Yeah. To write. And you might even be able to cut and paste a multiple choice question in and get the chatbot to tell you which, whether it's A, B, C, or D. As oh, that's also true. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So something's got to give. Maybe we have to lock you down inside the lecture hall to take the test or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, one um, of my colleagues said, well, we, we basically have to go to the Chinese Imperial Civil Service exams. Where yes, we have are your locked in a <laughs> locked in a tiny room and you're inspected. So you're not carrying any tiny little, you know, cheating text sewn into your clothing that, that cover the, the highlights of Confucian philosophy. And yeah, and we'll just have paper and pencil exams. Maybe. I, I wanted to jump into a topic that I'm super interested in, and you're one of the world's experts in. And it feels like, just watching you from afar, that there, there was a phase that you went through where this was your main focus, and you were working with this guy, Tucker Max. And so, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you know more than almost anyone about things like dating, game, pickup artistry, Tinder hypergamy. Would you mind talking about that for a little bit? Sure. You know, I've, I've studied sexual selection through mate choice since the late 80s, I guess, and it in, hugely informed my, my early books like The Mating Mind. I was also witnessing the rise of pickup artist culture in the early 2000s. People like David D'Angelo, who's now a friend of mine, his real name is Evan Pagan, and Neil Strauss was writing that book, The Game, and people like The Mystery were running around giving young men dating advice. And I thought, okay, a lot of this is quite edgy and interesting and provocative, and it goes against a lot of the, the dominant kind of narratives in society about how men and women interact and what's really important in attraction. That's fine. But by about 2012, I thought, you know, a lot of this these red-pilled pickup artist guys are getting some really fundamental things wrong. And I think some of the advice they're giving is very misguided and not actually very helpful or actionable and a bit depressing and exploitative. Can, can I ask, is yeah. it fair to say that it's it's counterproductive for their long-term happiness, but maybe is productive for their short-term uh, sex having? Yeah, I think that was a main a main issue, but I also saw a lot of young men kind of misallocating effort in terms of what they were trying to improve about themselves. A lot of them seemed to have the impression that, okay, women only care about two things, how physically attractive you are and how much money you make. And they were really trying to optimize those two things very heavily. And they paid some attention to things like confidence and a little bit to humor, but they viewed those as sort of like superficial and manipulative and not really carrying value for the woman. Whereas they seem to have the impression that like, if you're a muscular alpha male guy and you make a lot of money, that's genuinely useful to women. So I met Tucker Max in Austin, Texas, sort of by chance about 10 years ago. We got to talking. He, he had actually read a huge amount of evolutionary psychology already, even before we met. 
And he said, I see these young men, they're kind of lost. They don't know how to go on dates. They were actually taking Tucker Max's early writings from like circa 2005. They were taking them as like advice books. And Tucker was like, they're not advice books. They're all the mistakes I made of getting drunk and having stupid hookups and, and taking dumb risks. And, you know, the, this is bad. We, we should get together and we should write a book of dating advice for young, single, straight guys. And that's what we did. We ran a podcast that had about two or 300 episodes. We published this book, Mate, in 2015. And I think we've helped a lot of young men get a little bit better, deeper understanding of the evolutionary psychology behind contemporary mating. And also, I hope we've tried to counteract some of the more harmful misunderstandings in the kind of red pill manosphere community. So but before we get into the more enlightened Miller-Max era of this history, I'm super curious about, you know, PUA and game. Now, when I was an undergrad in Los Angeles at Caltech, which is at the time an almost all-male institution, there were a lot of us out there trying to meet girls in the sort of LA scene. And mm -hmm. it seemed to me a lot of the observations from these PUA guys were similar to the types of strategies that Caltech guys had arrived at. And not that there's any direct connection, but the, the, there seemed to be a lot of similar, similarities. And it, it's also true that when I was growing up, I, I, I did stage magic when I was a little kid. So I, I knew about patter and misdirection and basically how to control the attention of the audience. So I was just really amazed when I saw video of these PUA guys at work. I think for a while there was even a, there was a TV show that actually had wired up a bar in Los Angeles and was just watching maybe this guy Mystery or Magic or whatever his name is at yeah. work. So I'm curious what your observations are about just the effectiveness of what those guys were doing in that era. I think it's, look, it's certainly effective. If, if you're a shy, unconfident guy who's very scared of women, and you deliberately practice approaching strangers in coffee shops or bars, and you get comfortable with rejection, and you get comfortable having conversations with strangers, of course, that's absolutely helpful. I mean, it, it, look, this, this even goes back to Albert Ellis and rational emotive therapy, which is kind of psychotherapy back in the 60s and 70s that's influenced a friend of mine, Nando Pelusi, who's a clinical psychologist. Albert Ellis said, look, we run around with a lot of irrational fears. The way to overcome the fears is face them and do the thing you're afraid of. If you're a young man and you're afraid of approaching a woman in a public park, you just have to practice doing that. And he would give assignments to his clients like, look, don't even bother coming back to therapy until you have politely and respectfully approached at least 20 women in a public park, right? And gotten calibrated about what, what are your chances of somebody you know, slapping you or calling the police or rejecting you in a, in a you know, embarrassing way. And it really worked. You know, it's a kind of desensitization therapy. And no doubt, in a lot of these face-to-face -face situations where your physical appearance and your confidence and your charisma is the first thing that women can see, then a lot of these PUA tactics can work very well. The trouble is, in the era of online dating, where women are increasingly wary 
of any man they don't know approaching them in public, right? They they want a guy to approach them, you know, through a dating app, not just come up and talk to them. A lot of the PUA tactics that work in real life might not work on dating apps, or might might not work if you're you know talking to somebody in your your line of business or your school or whatever. Yeah, it, it seemed like this PUA thing, which was, I guess, the aughts or something, it, it was the last gasp of that era that you and I, where you, you and I grew up in this era where you had to actually, you know, meet girls at bars and parties and stuff like this. And yeah. that was like the ultimate development of the sort of male skill set for optimizing that situation. And then we entered this world of dating apps. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was also up. The whole PUA thing was also optimized to a highly alcohol-dependent dating culture that was centered around bars and clubs. And I see a bit of a generational shift where, like, with the legalization of cannabis, you know, cannabis is a little more important than alcohol. With the rise of Burning Man culture and sort of renewed interest in psychedelics, that becomes relatively more important than just, like, you know, drinking with women. And, oh, also, of course, in a lot of communities now, um, nootropics, like people routinely using modafinil and stuff like that at work, the way you talk to somebody when you're tipsy is very different than the way you would talk if you're, you know, high or on modafinil or whatever. So the dating culture keeps changing, but I think the underlying evolutionary psychology principles still say, stay more or less the same. So when, when you and Tucker Max got into it, I, th- I think I've listened, not certainly not listened to 200 of your podcasts, but I've listened to a few. It seems like you were giving very good balanced advice to young men that I'm guessing you have a sense that you helped a lot of young men during that period of time. I mean, we, we wished that, you know, more young men had bought the book. We, we were sort of like, we hope this is a bestseller. Every author wants their book to be a bestseller and expects it and is sad when it doesn't happen. But I have met you know, young men who come up at conferences or public talks I give and they say, wow, Professor Miller, you really helped me. I read Mate. I listened to the Mating Grounds podcast. Here is my girlfriend or here is my wife. And we wouldn't have met if I hadn't read, you know, your your book. So that's enormously rewarding. And even if it's only, you know, a few dozen or a few hundred, a thousand young men we've helped, that's still, I think it's a win. I think it's, it's still real relationships and real lives that are happier and that's that's very rewarding yeah it's i think you should take real satisfaction from that from really helping people thanks yeah yeah you know what i one of the startups that i helped found is this is one called it's in texas called Othram, and it uses forensic dna to solve crimes using genetic genealogy so from very very small dna samples like I think the smallest sample that we've solved the crime with is something like 20 cells equivalent of DNA. You can you can get the genotype, find a you know first cousin match. The detectives then can go interview people and map out the family tree and catch the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really been directly involved in it because the company is just, you know, the people that on the team are just so good, they don't really need my help with <laughs> this. But I, every time they solve a case, which is like at this point now, several times a week sometimes. I just take incredible personal satisfaction from it because, you know, you're bringing closure to some family whose daughter's been missing for 20 years and you're putting some serial killer in jail. It's just, you know, I mean, 
it, it just blows away like writing some academic paper or something like that. Yeah, real-life impact is uniquely rewarding, and it, it makes me kind of sad. I have a lot of very talented, smart academic colleagues who just aren't very... I think they don't really understand how much real-world impact they could have if they were just a little bit creative about connecting their expertise to real-world problems. And in the case of like criminal DNA, right, the, the big win, the big win would come if uh, criminals in general realized just how easy it will be to, to track them through their DNA and if that actually deters crime. Yeah. Right? So it doesn't even show up in the crime statistics and the people who would get raped or murdered aren't getting raped or murdered because the criminals know, oh, oh shit, that, that like... DNA plus big ancestry data sets mean it, it's just way harder to get away with things than perhaps it used to be. I, I think we're probably within a decade of that, of getting to the, I mean, barring something like people outlawing this kind of, those kinds of databases or something, we will get to the point where it really has a kind of order one impact on, you know, likelihood of criminals being caught and things like this. And it, it then as a, as a next order effect influences the thinking of, you know, at least the somewhat more rational or smart criminals out there. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> the problem is a lot of criminals are really pretty dumb and impulsive and might not be deterred by, by anything rational that doesn't involve an almost immediate kind of negative reinforcer. But that's another story. Yep. So just to finish up with dating, I'm curious, are you still following how this whole thing is evolving? I, I had Rob Henderson on this podcast and I was kind of asking him about, you know, he's much younger than we are, about the Tinder world and hypergamy and, you know, the effect of the dating apps now on, on you know, typical behavior of, of young people who are dating. I am following it partly because we have a lot of friends who are still active with dating apps and active on the, the mating market, partly because my own daughter, who's age 26, lives in New York, you know, is is doing her own, like, mate search. And we often talk about the kind of ebb psych of the young men she meets and is evaluating. My students certainly talk about it in classes. And I do a lot of podcast interviews where I kind of get into discussions about the current state of things. I, I, I think... Unfortunately, the rise of wokeness, particularly in dating apps, has been really harmful. Like OkCupid used to be a really awesome dating app. I actually used it like about 10 years ago, quite a bit. And it was wonderful. You answer all these questions up to two or 3,000 questions. You get matched with other people who give the same answers to these questions about education and values and lifestyle and sexuality and all that. And it was very effective. There were millions of people using it. However, when Trump got elected or was running, okay, Cupid senior executive seemed to have made a kind of decision that, well, basically, we don't want anybody conservative using okay, Cupid. And we're going to kind of include a bunch of questions that call them out, that embarrass them. We're going to make it easy for young women to screen out male, like, Trump supporters and so forth, and they really politicized the app so that OkCupid okay, became this kind of woke desert of virtue signaling, and it was no longer very effective at actually matching people. And I worry that that has sort of spilled over into some of the other 
dating apps as well, or you end up with dating apps like Tinder, which are just incredibly superficial and basically all about how you look in photographs and that don't actually involve any psychological matching. I, I thought that Match, Tinder, and OkCupid are now owned by the same parent company. Am I wrong about yeah, that? Yeah, they, they just, they kind of have like a different market segments, I guess, where Tinder is like for visually obsessed superficial people. Match.com <laughs> is a little bit more about like frustrated New Yorkers in their 30s trying to finally be like, ah, I'm tired of the dating scene. I want a long-term partner. I need to, you know, lock down a spouse ASAP. And OkCupid okay, is more for kind of Gen Z woke, virtue signals yeah i i I, it's what was i going to say i i had some contact with the some of the management of the the company that owns all those dating apps and we were actually discussing in a very casual way like at at any point whether they would start using dna information for some of the matching and they weren't ready they weren't really ready for it but they were quite interested in understanding where the where the science and the technology are yeah, I think, you know, as much as people derogate genetic information, if you get them in like intellectual conversation mode, it might be a source of amazing kind of competitive advantage for a dating app to actually include some of that DNA stuff, just because it would be new and different and kind of provocative. And also, I think particularly when people are thinking about long-term mating and spouses and having kids and settling down, they naturally tend to get a little more interested in in the genetics and the heritability of various traits. Obviously, if people are choosing like sperm or egg donors, they they tend to set aside Stephen Jay Gould and become super eugenicist and hereditarian. Yeah. Well, when the the preferences are actually revealed, which is in the office of the genetic counselor at the IVF clinic, and everybody you know, plenty of people who are, what is it, woke in the streets, they're eugenicists yeah. in the sheets or whatever, however you say it. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, that that kind of hypocrisy is so normalized in kind of lefty intellectual circles that nobody really questions it. But it, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the polygenic scores allow embryo selection, you know, in 5, 10 or 20 years. How do the anti-hereditary folks kind of square that circle once they, they start actually using polygenic scores to make sure that like the kid is actually going to be smart enough to get into Stanford. Well, you know, right now the the issue that we have at, you know, the company Genomic Prediction, which which does production <laughs> using polygenic scores, is you know, we have like there's one class of scientists who are really world class statistical geneticists, and they're of course very interested in what we're doing. And they often write papers where they they've done some calculations or simulations of how well it can work. And, you know, typically they're they end up basically replicating results that we've already published. But then when they write the paper, they write it with a very negative spin or the journal nature or science wants them to have a very negative spin on the whole thing. But when you actually look at the graphs or the the actual numbers that are in their paper, they're almost completely in agreement with the stuff that we've already published. So there's already there's a there's a kind of schizophrenia there in the way the topic is treated. Now, people who aren't scientists but are very woke just are against the whole thing. But oftentimes they're against it because it exacerbates inequality, not because they doubt that it can actually work. Yeah. And 
I guess my, you know, my worry is that what, what could end up happening is you get a bunch of tech billionaires kind of using the genomic prediction on down low to influence their kids and create kind of a really like smart, high quality dynasty. And then ordinary folks are so kind of brainwashed by the dominant antigene narratives that they don't use the technology, even if they like, could afford it, even if they were interested, even if, it, even if it worked. And, you know, that could exacerbate the inequality also. I think anybody who genuinely cares about reducing inequality should be embracing the polygenic score prediction methods because it's a great leveler. It, it gives ordinary folks a huge amount of power, potentially, to increase the capabilities of, of their, their kids. And yeah, it would be a sh you know a shame if they were kind of ideologically handicapped and brainwashed into not not using it. Yeah, this is the point which you know if you are actually a progressive, but a progressive who really wants to rely on interventions that work as opposed to interventions that don't actually work, then you should make IVF and polygenic screening of embryos free. You should just have it covered by the healthcare system and give more resources to families that need the resources. So if they, if they haven't been successful within their family and going to college and doing well, you know, you should just give them more resources to do more cycles and just get better results. And a few people understand this. Actually, there are some progressive bioethicists and philosophers who actually have advocated for this. But by and large, I think this, this point is lost on most people. Yeah, and you know, there, there are limited resources, but I think if it's a choice between like, quote, forgiving college student loans versus making polygenic score prediction available to everybody, that, that's a no-brainer. Like you, you just obviously give people the, the genomic information and the power. And you know, if you combine that with having really good state-of-the-art adaptive IQ testing, then maybe people don't really know, need to go to college as much. You know, if you if you limit can... just to the health, you know, reducing health risks risks for you know certain diseases like type two diabetes or schizophrenia, the return to the system if you have a single payer kind of health system, the return on investment is huge. So it's actually it's actually in the long cost positive, a cost negative to the system to make IVF and uh, polygenic screening free. So yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, that benefit might come after 10, 20, 30 years rather than within the, the, the next election cycle. So there's yeah. not as much political pressure. Well, it requires long-term planning, this kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there again, China adopts it first. I don't know about that, but maybe, maybe Taiwan. So the, the people I'm working with in Taiwan are actually in the healthcare system. And so they're, they're very eager to deploy the results, not necessarily in fertility, but maybe in adult screening, like identifying outliers in risk for certain conditions. I think that's the, one of the key wins that yeah. so far no health system has pulled the trigger, but the, the UK system is studying it and Finland, they're studying it and Taiwan, they're studying it. So at some point, some country that has something like a single pair system is going to do this. So things are moving, definitely. Let me turn to maybe our last topic, or no, second to last topic, but this is the one I see you interviewed about a lot, which is polyamory. Mm -hmm. And so 
maybe just say a little bit for, I don't think my audience is all that familiar with the whole thing. So maybe, maybe you could just give a very brief introduction to it. Yeah, so I got interested in this topic, both kind of personally and professionally. So I've taught some courses on alternative relationships. Part of the rationale for that is just a large number of millennials and Gen Z are in alternative relationships where they're not normatively monogamous. That is to say, they might have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but they're not sexually exclusive. And they have an explicit verbal understanding. These are our rules. These are our norms. You can have outside lovers. You can have other people you're seeing, you're interested in. You can flirt with other people. You know, this is all up for negotiation. And there's some pretty good surveys indicating that a substantial minority of people under 30 do not see sexual exclusive monogamy as the ideal relationship structure. So descriptively, this is happening. This is a big trend among young, young adults. And I think it's important to understand it just so that like, you know, if we're teaching a human sexuality class and I've got, let's say, 100 undergrads, probably at least 10 of them would identify as polyamorous and maybe another 10 or 20 of them would say, yeah, I've been in an open relationship or I've tried one or I'm familiar with it or I have a friend or family member who's, who's involved in it. So I think assuming monogamy as the norm when you're you know, talking about these things or doing research on sexuality is no longer valid. I also think intellectually it raises a lot of interesting questions about things like, well, evolutionary psychology traditionally has had a fairly monogamous orientation that says, well, humans evolved to form pair bonds, marriage is natural, sexual jealousy is strong and adaptive and natural. And I think the question arises, like how much can emotions like jealousy or envy be managed effectively? A lot of my EvPsych colleagues would say, not at all. Jealousy is too strong. Nobody can possibly master it. Nobody can desensitize to it. It's not possible to have a stable long-term relationship unless you have extremely strong sexual exclusivity norms and expectations. And I think that's just empirically false. There are a lot of very happy open or polyamorous relationships where people do master their sexual jealousy to a pretty high degree. So I think th there's a sort of interesting emotion management question like how do they do that? What, what are the hacks? What are the, the tactics? And then recently we've had a lot of interesting debates about what exactly is the function of monogamous marriage in civilization. So people like anthropology professor Joseph Hendrick at Harvard and Professor Jordan Peterson, Toronto, have made the argument monogamy is absolutely bedrock central to civilization and you can't have a successful civilization without sexual exclusive marriage as as the norm and i see these arguments showing up a lot on social media especially twitter where people are like any challenge to monogamy is a challenge to western civilization itself and i've given talks where i've said well look <laughs> people do need long-term stable pair bonds to raise kids that makes sense. But how sexually exclusive really do those need to be in an era of, you know, 
widespread porn and sex workers and many people doing open relationships successfully, etc. So that's kind of my, my slightly long-winded intro to, to polyamory. When, when I see you interviewed about it, so obviously there, there, there's some in, intellectual interest in you know, the subject itself, but do, do you view yourself as an advocate? Sometimes it seems like they're setting you up as the advocate for polyamory. I'm not, to the extent that I'm an advocate, you know, I'm certainly an advocate of this is worth studying. If you're teaching anything about sexuality or you're doing clinical work with people, it's absolutely crucial to understand it. And it's professional misconduct to not understand it. You know, in terms of personal life, I've explicitly said poly is not for everybody. I would not recommend this as sort of a widespread mass movement that everybody should pile into, you know, in hopes that this this is like the route to, to, to sexual utopia. It's really difficult. It's, it's a very steep learning curve. It's not for everybody. It's not easy. It requires a lot of intelligence, emotional sensitivity, communication skills, good partners, etc. So, you know, I identify as, as polyamorous. I'm in a happy, stable, open relationship marriage. We've got a young baby, so we're not exactly, you know, gallivanting around having a lot of partners at the moment. We're basically in parenting mode, not mating mode. But it's still, it, it's a heavily stigmatized way to have relationships. So I kind of feel an obligation that like, if I'm personally involved in it, I do have a duty to be kind of open and, and honest and kind of own it because so many people who are into it are extremely shy about it and don't talk about it, even though they're doing it on the down low. So I have the freedom having been brutally canceled multiple <laughs> times by the media that like, I don't really care and I can, I can say what I want and pretty much do what I want. And, you know, some people respond well to it. Other people think I'm just, you know, a degenerate enemy of civilization itself. And I hope if they, they read my, like my Twitter feed with an unbiased eye, they'll see like, I really like civilization. I like pronatalism. I like, you know, a lot of things that they would probably value. I just have a somewhat different relationship style. And I think polyamory is in much the same position that maybe gay relationships were, were at in maybe the early 70s, when they were just getting on the radar, there was just the beginnings of the gay rights movement. And, you know, gay and lesbian people came out of the closet. Did Western civilization collapse? Well, to the extent that it did, it wasn't because of gay and lesbian relationships, right? It's still, it's, those are a minority of people. There was no risk that everybody would suddenly turn gay just because we had gay rights. And I don't think there's any realistic, you know, risk that like everybody is going to turn polyamorous within one generation. I think that's just not going to happen. To, to me, it seems like a very high degree of difficulty kind of relationship to execute on. And, you know, someone like you who is obviously very thoughtful and mature and really understands a lot about human psychology, I can, I can imagine that you could execute on it without blowing up your, your marriage my own experience with this going back to when I was in my 20s and dating and not ready to settle down, I remember being in relationships where I would start dating a girl, a woman, and 
I would say, hey, I'm not really ready to settle down. I really like you. I like to spend time with you and being very open about the situation. And then oftentimes the the, the woman, my girlfriend would, or the, the woman would say, oh, I'm okay with that. I, and we, we could even negotiate like being a nerdy physics guy. I could even like yeah. say to her, wait, do you really, you know, do you really understand what I'm saying? Because I might like Friday night, I might go out with somebody else. Right. You understand that. Right. And yeah. I would even, so almost like kind of get like the equivalent of a verbal agreement, never a written agreement, but a ver verbal <laughs> agreement that this was okay. But in every instance, when this happened, it always kind of blew up where ultimately they really couldn't stand that kind of thing. They were jealous. They did actually want to be monogamous. And so I just never had it really work out. And it always, it always ended up causing a bigger blow up and more guilt on my part later on. So I ultimately just thought, well, at least at my skill level, I can't really pull this off. Yeah. And looking back, like in my high school and college experiences, there were a lot of people who were kind of sort of being polyamorous, like they were dating multiple people, they were having multiple ongoing relationships, but they never talked about it. They weren't sort of radically honest about it. They didn't negotiate their, their norms and expectations very clearly. They didn't really have any resources, you know, books and videos and stuff they could go to about how do I manage my jealousy? Make sure I get the degree of commitment and, and respect that I want. So polyamory as a culture, you know, has only been around since the early to mid nineties. It's very much an internet based culture, but it has been working hard to kind of try to develop these, these best practices. I'm involved in a big international research consortium where we're trying to identify which best practices actually predict relationship satisfaction and stability, both in monogamous and polyamorous relationships. We hope to have those papers coming out soon. And I would just emphasize to listeners who are like, oh my God, this polyamory stuff sounds terrible. Look, the, the choice that young people in their 20s face is not really realistically polyamory versus settle down in a trad-like monogamous marriage. The real choice they're facing is, do they do ethical polyamory or do they do a typical Tinder hookup culture where nobody's really honest about who else they're seeing or are they still, you know, looking for mates, even though they're kind of sort of in a relationship where everybody's delaying moving in together or getting married for years and years, right? So compared to Tinder hookup culture, I think polyamory is generally better. But honestly, for a lot of people, you know, the best option would be like, find a really good mate in college, settle down, get married, start having kids in your mid-20s, and don't wait till you're like late thirties before you find a mate. You know, in, in, uh, I, I heard you describe one model of polyamory in which there, there's a very explicit prioritization or hierarchy where you say, th this is the person that I really, you know, I'm going to devote most of my emotional resources to, and I have a long lasting relationship with, and I just want to be very clear with you. You're, you're, you're someone I like to spend time with, but you're lower on the priority list. And I, I think, you know, if you're really explicit, obviously, maybe you discharge your ethical responsibilities. But of course, you know, whether that situation can really work out is, is still, you know, looks challenging to me. Yeah, I think the important thing is, you know, you need to be confident that the person who is your so-called primary partner, like your main boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, 
is actually very well suited to you and would not be easily replaced by somebody else. And it certainly helps to have mutual commitments to each other, like living together, having a mortgage, having kids, you know, being intertwined socially and financially and so forth. But once you've got that, you know, the great liberating thing is you can potentially have secondary partners, other lovers you're seeing once in a while, who don't necessarily have to live in the same city, who don't necessarily have to share all of your like political values or aspirations, who maybe you, you enjoy their company for a day or three days, but where you know you wouldn't actually be able to enjoy like living with them full time. So it kind of broadens the, the possibilities for people you can interact with, have feelings for, feel romantic with, and you don't have to always hold someone up to this incredibly high standard of like, oh, if, if they're not the best possible marriage material for me, then they're of zero interest to me, right? That, that's what I think is very harmful, treating people as kind of inferior and disposable if they're not the perfect long-term mate. I'm, I'm guessing you, given your crypto interests, you might have followed the FTX Alameda events recently indeed indeed very closely um and i guess they reportedly were in a polycule in the bahamas and i think carolyn ellison the ceo of alameda actually wrote something favoring the i think she referred to it as the chinese imperial concubine system with some hierarchy yeah. of of mates or something like this i i i are they are they students of your of, of your teachings Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I, like, I've never had any like personal contact or met SBF or Caroline Ellison or, or I'm not in their social circles. I mean, the funny thing when FGX blew up was all the polyamorous people were like, oh my God, I hope they focus on the crypto and the effective altruism angle and not on the poly angle. And all the effective altruists were like, oh my God, I hope they focus on the crypto and the poly stuff and not on the effective altruism angle and the crypto people are like, oh, this polycule, that's what that's what messed them up. It's not the crypto thing. So everybody was kind of hoping that the other subcultures would be blamed for it, what what happened. It seems like in the coverage I've followed, the polycule stuff is one of the most sort of minor things. So, so num you know, number one is, you know, grifting fraud. And number two is maybe um, EA. And then number three is probably polyamory in the coverage. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. That's what I've seen so far. There's, I would say there's so many businesses that have gotten trouble, gotten into trouble about kind of office romances that the polyamory is almost irrelevant. Like this could have easily happened if the people involved were in very respectful, mono, you know, monogamous vanilla relationships. So I think the poly is kind of a, a, a red herring. Yeah, I, I don't think um, anybody is attributing blame to Polly for this disaster. Just it's just another way to knock these guys by saying, "Oh, look, they were weird in this other way as well." Yeah, I think EA could have played a big role because one of the hypotheses that's going around, even by EA people, is that SBF was willing to, you know, make these fifty-one forty-nine kind of wagers because, from a kind of EA perspective, 
it, it might be it might be justifiable to take on just a huge amount of risk in the way you run your company so that you know potentially you could double your money and do even more good in the future so that seems possible to me yeah there's been a huge amount of discussion within ea and i'm i've been involved in effective altruism for about six years and i've taught courses on it and i'm very active on the EA forum and oh my god i mean we've we've written maybe millions of words back and forth in the last few weeks about you know was ea to blame for this and what role did it play and i think my take is that sam bankman fried had an extremely weird and extreme version of expected value theory that he was sort of applying to his business decisions but that would not be endorsed by literally anybody i know in ea that that was just so far out on the edge of, of risk seeking that like it, it doesn't make any pragmatic sense that he was either thinking that way or making business or investment decisions based on it. So the, the story that I'm, I'm certainly no expert on this in this area, but, but I did follow the FTX story pretty with great interest. The way SBF described why he left Jane Street in the first place and started trading Bitcoin was that he had become convinced that he needed to be on the efficient frontier for risk-taking in his own life so that Jane Street was too safe. And if it's safe, then by efficient market theory, you're giving up a lot of upside. And so he thought he had to push himself to some place where he really was taking on a lot of risk. And if you fast forward that to the way he was running FTX, that, that if, if he continued with that philosophy, then he would also have to basically run FTX in a very aggressive way that he would actually be risking, you know, collapse, blowing up. And that, that does seem consistent, actually. With the, you know, a, a lot of it could have just been negligence, like they just didn't really know how to run the accounting and back office functions and stuff. And so they just got into a terrible situation. But some people are attributing, you know, actual sort of Machiavellian intent to a lot of this. Yeah, I think the great tragedy here is if Sam Bankman-Fried had just taken a few more courses in evolutionary theory rather than economic theory, <laughs> he would have he would have stumbled across this thing called optimal foraging theory, which analyzes how animals make investments about finding food and avoiding starvation. And when optimal foraging theory first started in the, the 60s and 70s, all the biologists thought, oh, animals are obviously going to maximize expected value, expected calories. They're going to forage in a way that, you know, make sure they get the maximum expected number of calories as they go around the world. Well, it turned out animals weren't doing that. Instead, what animals were doing is minimizing the risk of star starvation over the cold night or the cold winter, right? Because animals can only store so much food or fat or, or whatever they need when they're they're chilly and they're hibernating. And so everything from hummingbirds to grizzly bears really makes these optimal foraging decisions to avoid ruin, not to maximize expected value. And what SPF did not do was, you know, minimize the, the probability of ruin. If he'd actually done the math on like, okay, let's roll FTX forward. Let's roll Alameda research forward for a number of years what is the likelihood we go bankrupt? 
making the kind of extreme high-risk bets that we're making, I think that probability approaches one. Like, there was no way they could have actually run those companies the way they did without going bankrupt or being in a position where they had to dip into, you know, user funds or get into massive legal trouble. They engineered a business that was absolutely doomed to fail sooner or later. And that's what happens if you try to maximize expected value and you ignore the risk of, of ruin. Yeah, I, I agree with that analysis 100%, but it is possible that SBF understood that and, and still went for it. <laughs> and I think that's how he describes the reason why he left Jane Street. Because if he had just stayed at Jane Street, he would have become fabulously wealthy, but not a, you know, not a billionaire. And but when he went off to trade Bitcoin, there was a good chance he was just going to be ruined and not not succeed at all. So he might have just been repeating, consciously repeating this, uh, you know, wanting to be at the risk frontier, even if if you have a chance of being ruined. The, the other aspect of this, which, you know, may be weird, even within EA circles is, you know, he does have a background in physics and some people believe in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And in that interpretation, sure, he blew up in this world, but he might have been maximizing utility across the multiverse. So there are other SBFs who became the richest man in the world and most influential man in the world or something. So I, this is all speculative, of course. I don't know what really what he was thinking, but it's fun to discuss. Yeah, I think that's actually a fascinating issue. I was talking with some local EAs here in Albuquerque about that very, that multiverse perspective, like, okay, are there worlds in which SBF, you know, in five years has a trillion dollars to do really good things and to save the world from bad AI and so forth. And did he believe that that, like, it doesn't matter what happens in the failed, failed worlds as long as there's a few worlds in which humanity succeeds long-term and spreads throughout the galaxy, blah, blah, blah. But I think the problem is, like, his risk assessment was simply empirically off. That it was obvious that the way Alameda Research and FTX were actually run, that they were doomed to fail. And there's like almost no timeline in the multiverse where he would have actually succeeded doing the kinds of things that he did. And that's the alarming thing that I, I think that was a, a fundamental failure in their kind of risk management. It's like multiverse or not, the risk of financial ruin and reputational ruin is just extremely high. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think even if he was knowingly really taking on as much risk as one could reasonably take, they probably screwed up in the actual execution of it and, you know, without intending to, you know, blew them, you know, took on much more risk of ruin than they thought they were taking on or, or that they, yeah. they were aware of. So let, let me, let's close out with one, something which I think he just very, did very recently, which is some work on AI alignment, which is, I guess, solidly within the EA world. And I think you, I think you were encouraging these, I think you said something like these young AI scientists need to learn a little bit more about psychology or evolutionary psychology in thinking about uh, how to succeed in AI alignment. Yeah, that, that's, it's a really fun, well, fun and horrifying topic to work on. And of course I come in and I'm like, well, actually the field in which I happen to that uh, expertise is going to be absolutely crucial to solving this colossal real-world problem. But I'm, I'm not entirely without some background. I mean, at Stanford in grad school, I did quite a bit of work on neural networks and genetic algorithms and machine learning and did a postdoc at University of Sussex that was all about 
evolving neural networks to control autonomous robots. So 30 years ago, I was pretty into machine learning. And then I kind of, you know, went off into this ab psych thing. And lately I've returned to thinking about AI because I think it is a, a crucial issue. AI progress is very rapid. There's a lot of interesting ideas about how to try to make AI safe. But I think a lot of those ideas are just incredibly naive about how human behavior works and how human conflicts of interest operate. And in particular, you know, a lot of the AI alignment people run around saying we must, we must align AI with human values. But they seem to mean something very peculiar by that. Human values in general as a sort of lowest common denominator of what all humans would reasonably want if they were perfectly rational and farsighted. And I've tried to make the argument in various essays for EA Forum that, look, humans can barely align with each other. Parents can barely align with their own children. Co you know, coworkers can barely align to get a company to function. Faculty can barely align in faculty meetings to do what's good for the department. So the idea that AI should be easily able to align with sort of all humans generically seems very naive, both in terms of the, the general game theory of how conflicts of interest work and in terms of the psychology of how like tribalism and self-interest works. Yeah, I agreed with your take. I, I think these guys are, I, I, you know, I would say that I've been telling this to Miri people for about 10 years that it just seems like uh, you're not going to succeed for you know, for reasons that you just elucidated. But even if you, you know, even if you were to succeed in hardwiring a quote set of values or priorities into the AI, you know, humans who have the same quote values might still choose radically different strategies to achieve those goals. And that still might, you know, involve something bad happening to humanity. <laughs> so it just, to predict the behavior of some being which is much more intelligent than you and much more complex than you in terms of its cognition, it just doesn't seem like one could actually guarantee that it would always behave in a way that you would be happy with. So I've always thought AI alignment was, you know, of course, you can't prove any theorems about this, but it just seemed very, very implausible that it was a solvable problem. Yeah, and I think there's a certain culture in AI alignment that is very nerdy and a bit Asperger-y and worships formalization and is very technical and sort of has the view that if you're not an extremely skilled computer programmer, you shouldn't even be talking about AI at all because you're not an expert. And I have some respect for that kind of viewpoint, but on the other hand, you know, there's two sides of alignment. There's the AI side and there's the human side. And if you seriously want to align with humans, you have to align with them as they are, not as you want to abstractify them into being. And so, for example, some of my essays have, have written about, um, well, if you want to align with humans, 80% of humans are religious and are involved in organized religion and religious values are important to them. But guess what? People <laughs> believe in different religions. You know, the four big ones are Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and, and Hinduism. And they don't always see eye to eye. So which religion are you going to align your AI with? 
hundreds of millions of people in each religion. And of course, the AI alignment people hate talking about this because they're all atheists. <laughs> and they think religion is stupid. And why should we worry about that? And in 20 years, there won't be religion. And I, I do worry that AI alignment research can give the illusion that, oh, very smart people are working on AI safety and they will solve it by the time we get really powerful, dangerous AI. And I think that's actually not likely to happen and we won't solve alignment. So my, my personal hunch at the moment is that we should slow down AI research deliberately and, and seriously and just take a little bit of a pause before we develop it. And I'm not talking about a super long pause on evolutionary timescales. I think if we just wait, you know, just a few centuries, <laughs> just a few, yeah. a few generations, it, that would be reasonable. And maybe we can solve AI alignment problems by the year 2500 or so. Well, I think what you're saying might be wise, whether it's feasible in a world where the Chinese and the Americans are competing for tech supremacy doesn't seem very promising to me that that's going to happen. But in fact, we're probably going to rush headlong into it the way we rushed headlong into nuclear weapons. And yeah, I think with the very bad consequences. Yeah. I mean, we should, we should wrap it up soon because I got baby that needs attending to. But I, I actually do think, despite the fact that we got a geopolitical arms race for AI between the US and China, that there are things that could happen that might lead the general public in both countries to stigmatize AI so heavily, to morally stigmatize it that it becomes as disreputable to work on AI as it currently is to work on behavior genetics or EPSYC. It, it could happen. It happened in Dune, right? Do you remember the Butlerian yeah. Jihad? That they had a near-death experience as a species. <laughs> that's, that's how that happened. But uh, yeah. But I, 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 I want to let you go because uh, obviously the baby and the family come first. It's been really a great conversation and hope, hope we bump into each other in person sometime soon. That'd be great. Yeah, I appreciate it, Steve. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay, take care, Jeffrey. <laughs>